Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position, along with your favorite beverage, to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine the show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussion, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience at Smith Weekly, including Joe G, Jared W, and Paul M. Joining us today is Michael Schneider. Michael is convening lead author and publisher of the annual World Nuclear Industry Status Report. He is also founding board member and spokesperson of the International Energy Advisory Council. Michael is also a member of the International Panel on Fizzle Materials. You can learn more about Michael's work by visiting worldnuclearreport.org and also ieac.info. Michael, it's been a pleasure and yes. thank you for accepting our invite to come on the show. Well, thanks for having me. Well, Michael, there's a lot of other stuff I missed in your introduction. So why don't you give the audience a background and tell us about your work you do in the energy sector and specifically in nuclear energy? Well, I've been working on as an independent analyst and consultant on energy and nuclear policy for, well, it's now over 35 years, I guess. Um, I have been working for a number of years for several governments at the same time in France and Belgium and Germany. I've worked for over 30 years now with uh, politicians, MPs from various countries, in particular from the uh, European Parliament. And I've advised um, oh, a very broad range of uh, clients from think tanks to universities um, to uh, investors or, um, you know, um, NGOs, any, any people that work professionally on energy policy issues. An extensive background. Uh, encourage people to listen to and look at your your bio on on the different websites I provided. Um, now you are in progress with finishing up the annual World Nuclear Industry Status Report for 2019. Tell us, if you can, a little bit about when this report will be ready, uh, the main points and trends and things you want to convey to the readers of that report. Yeah, the the report um, is has been out now uh, annually for over a decade, uh, pretty much in in uh, since 2007 in various formats, um, and um, it's now pretty much the only independent reference there is as an annual report. It's an international team. This year we have eight authors from six countries, uh, including three university professors, uh, one from Canada, from Japan, one and one from uh, Germany. Um, and we have the founder of the Rocky Mountain Institute, uh, Amory Lovins, as a contributing author, uh, uh, who is probably quite well known amongst uh, your listeners uh, as well. So it's it's an interdisciplinary international team uh, that does a multi-criteria trend analysis. That's the whole idea. Uh, I, I tend to think that energy policy needs to be looked at over the long term and uh, by multi-indicators. It doesn't really make sense to pick out one and, and discuss it. You really have to look at a whole range of, of indicators to understand what the status and trends are. And I guess what we have seen uh, since uh, the WNISR 2018 came out uh, a year ago uh, is a further uh, differentiation, like the gap is widening between uh, nuclear power on one hand and, and its main competitors, which today have uh, turned out, you know, over the past few years being renewables. Whereas even if you think back five years, people spoke about the uh, natural gas bridge uh, uh, 
today that's pretty much gone. We we have a situation where, for the first time, uh, uh, in countries like India, uh, we have new solar that is actually competing uh, with existing coal. We have situations now in the U.S. where uh, new solar and wind is uh, combined with um, uh, storage uh, can compete with ab average prices of uh, nuclear power in the market. Uh, so uh, we're seeing sort of a, 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 the, the situation is not get, getting easier for, for nuclear power in the, in the market uh, sector. And I appreciate you, you sharing some of that information there. Now, now when is the report coming out? So the report is coming out uh, on the 24th of September. It will be released at the Central European University in Budapest. Um, and there will be presentations in, uh, in various countries after that, including the US in, uh, in uh, Washington DC on the 7th of October uh, and likely in Chicago uh, on the 8th of October. And there will be presentations in Poland and in uh, so in other European countries, in Paris, in in Vienna, in uh, uh, Slovakia. Uh, so so there's a, a whole range of in China as well. We have had uh, translations of uh, parts of the report, and in 2017, the entire report uh, in Chinese. So there there is a broad interest in 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 this uh, reference document now and michael you you mentioned earlier you consult for various governments and organizations can you and you just spoke just a little bit about some of the economics that here with with that are coming out on this report related to you know solar and wind and other forms of energy competing with nuclear on a on a cost uh, basis can you share with us for some of those clients that you've consulted with in general what do they want from you and what do you generally tell them? Do you tell them all the same thing or is each experience tailored to specific situations they face regarding energy in their country? Oh, it's definitely uh, tailored, but it's, uh, you see when, when you, uh, this reference document is now an excellent basis for tailoring. Uh, you know, it provides uh, global data and it does uh, very specific assessments country by country. We always have a, a range of focus countries that that are assessed in more depth. Um, uh, but uh, so so the, this this annual work, which is continuous, obviously to be able to do that, put it out once a year, is is providing the basis for tailoring for for each uh, client or each situation that might come up. Okay, and and uh, you mentioned economic performance of nuclear power just a little bit. Can you expand a little bit that on that uh, on a global basis? Compare nuclear power economic performance with other competitor forms of energy. Yeah, if we look at at the the latest assessments by um, Lazar Bank, which is sort of one of the the best we consider one of the best international references for LCOE's uh, levelized um, uh, cost of energy for various electricity generating technologies. What we've seen over the past decade is that uh, uh, large scale utility scale solar has come down about 88 um, percent. Wind has come down. 69% and uh, nuclear has actually increased over that same time period by 23%. So that's what I mean by widening gap. Uh, the, the renewable energy competitors are getting cheaper and cheaper uh, and nuclear power is actually getting more and more expensive. Now, why is that? I mean, that's, that's obviously one, one of the questions. Uh, what we have seen in in many countries is that uh, the construction times uh, uh, are never what they were expected to be. So we have 
you know, phenomenal delays in construction. And obviously, these delays are very expensive uh, because, uh, you know, it, a multi-billion uh, dollar uh, facility is, is very costly to finance. Uh, so a, a year delay is is, is an extremely uh, expensive um, um, delay, not only because the 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 power generation, so the money making is coming in later, but because financing is 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 expensive, and we have seen, uh, you know, our assessment is always over a decade. For example, we look. Uh, 63 reactors have been connected to the grid over the past uh, decade, and the average construction time was just under 10 years. Uh, and if we say construction, uh, one has to be precise. The, technically, the construction start is the concreting of the base slab of the reactor building. So obviously, there's a lot of uh, time until a construction site gets to that stage. So we're talking times uh, that are that are 15 years there, sometimes that are even much longer than that. And that is expensive, and that makes it very difficult for uh, nuclear to compete. Now, why have been the why have we seen uh, these these delays? Uh, I guess one of the main, there's many reasons for that, but one of the main reasons really is um, quality insurance on the construction sites or in the factories. Uh, and uh, it, it has turned out very difficult uh, even to provide uh, concreting, uh, welding, uh, very basic, uh, uh, you know, technical skills. Uh, to the technical specifications needed in, in nuclear projects and, you know, leading to, to situations as we've seen in, in, in France right now uh, with the latest delay of the uh, European pressurized uh, water reactor, the EPR at Flamanville, uh, which uh, has been delayed by another three years because wells uh, are not uh, as they were supposed to be. They have uh, defects, defaults um, in the main on the main steam line, which goes through the containment. They're they are not accessible. So basically, one has to destroy part of the containment and re rebuild it, uh, redo the uh, uh, repair the, the the welding and and redo it. So you can imagine these are eight wells. They will cost. Uh, hundreds of millions uh, of euros, uh, if not more, uh, uh, just to repair. So we have seen, this is only one example, but we've seen this on a very long list of, of technical problems uh, that um, these new projects uh, have seen all over the planet. Right, and and you you mentioned, uh, I want to get over to France on some other topics here in a moment. Um, now you mentioned, you know, kind of first concrete pour uh, for the base slabs. Um, you've done a fair amount of work over in Asia, Michael. Uh, now, specifically on China, with the exception of the announcements that construction for three projects are going ahead, just recently announced, I believe it was in July, there hasn't been any new reactor construction groundbreaking since 2016. What are your thoughts on, on China and their uh, nuclear construction? Yeah, China obviously was the the big exception over the past decade. Uh, I mean, it's, it was basically the only country that has been massively building uh, of the 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 um, 63 reactors that I I have um, mentioned before. Uh, I think it's 37 that that are uh, uh, that are Chinese. So uh, very successful, uh, comparatively speaking, uh, um, a program. But China, um, you can put it this way: China has been building nuclear reactors as it has been building any other infrastructure. Nuclear power was in no, by no means, any different. It was not perceived as something specific. 
they they build uh, you know nuclear plants as they build factories, uh, roads, and and other uh, inf uh, infrastructure projects until Fukushima happened. And Fukushima was a uh, 311 was really a major shock for decision makers uh, wherever they were, whether they were in government or the in, in industry. Uh, it was a real profound shock. It and it you know as nuclear power was not a non-issue prior to that. You know, as as some Chinese colleague put it uh, uh, to me at some point, saying we discovered nuclear power with Fukushima, Fukushima. and that that's not uh, you know discovering a technology by an accident. Uh, a major one is probably not a very good way to to discover a technology. So uh, this led to a, a free major freeze for about four years, and what they they basically let the projects that were you know way ahead they let them uh finish uh, and there were a few that were in the pipeline just before breaking ground uh, that they also let uh, let go but so you know people didn't really realize that freeze uh that happened and then you know and by 2015 there were a few uh, additional uh authorizations but you know the overall number of units that uh, started building, uh, you know, went basically down from ten. In you know, one has to imagine in 2010 there were 15 construction starts in the world, of which 10 in China, and it has gone down. You know, in 2011 there was there was uh, zero, uh, and. Uh, in 2000, and then there were a few in between, and we have the last commercial reactor uh, construction startup in December 2016. So it, it really is the impact of Fukushima that had, has played a very major role. And, um, and the, the, a, very, a very unusual debate inside the country is uh, whether, it, inland reactors are acceptable or not this this debate had had not has not taken place in any other country but it's a very significant and and major debate in in china and so far none of the reactors had been licensed in, in uh, as inland reactors so so it is uh, you know together with the debate about which technology to use it's very clearly now that there will not be uh, any major new build of generation two reactors. So they, they, they have been developing their own uh, generation three model. Uh, they did have very bad experiences also with building EPRs in, uh, in China, although they were started up over the past year, which is, which is of course big news for, for the developers, but uh, you know these six reactors, four AP1000s and two EPRs, uh, they took uh, around nine years to build. Nine years, which was roughly it took roughly twice as long as they they thought it would take. And you know the Chinese industry and government don't doesn't really like that. I mean that wasn't the plan. So um, you know all these various factors make that. That you know there is a there is a big slowdown in the program, and China will miss by far its target in the five-year plan for 2020, which was 58 gigawatts operating and uh, 30 uh, gigawatts in the course of construction. And what we have now is uh, uh, we probably will have 51 uh, operating at the most, and we will have. We currently have like nine under construction, depending on how much uh, it will be. It will remain in any case way, way below the, the five-year target. Right. Yeah, certainly behind their ambitions. There's no doubt about that. Um, now, since Fukushima, you've seen some of these other countries start to pop up uh, with, with programs. Uh, and of course, Russia, Russia really pushing that outsourcing of running around the world and, and really offering up a, a number of packages uh, to build out. You know, Rosatom is probably the one of the hardest working, from from what I've seen, one of the hardest working organizations on export of, of nuclear power uh, outside of Russia. 
since Fukushima has has the Fukushima effect started to wear off in your view where you see some of these other countries starting to start these programs maybe for example uh, UAE and Saudi Arabia starting to explore and and potential do some building I don't think so I mean there's nothing really on the ground which is with the with the uh, obviously with the exception of UAE and you you're right to point this out uh, but you, this was a very particular case, right? I mean, it's the first Korean project uh, outside the country. Uh, they likely uh, lose a lot of money in in, in this project. Uh, it was very ambitious, you know, to, to start with four reactors uh, as a newcomer country. And, but in the end, uh, they didn't, weren't able to deliver as planned neither. They, they have now accumulated several years of delay. Um, so it, it, it doesn't really turn out as, as, uh, as planned. Um, there are, you know, the, the plans of Saudi Arabia have been around for, for a long time. Uh, it's like, uh, you know, you have, we have seen two new countries past year when I say past year, it's mid mid uh, 2018 or beginning of 2018 to 2000 uh, mid 2019, which is Turkey and um, Bangladesh. But you know, the Turkish plant has been talked about for 40 years, 40 years, and uh, uh, Bangladesh is uh, both are, are Russian uh, uh, projects. And you're perfectly right that that uh, Russia is the most aggressive. Um, uh, on the international market, but uh, it's it's not really uh, working out that well for for Russia, and it will be a big question to what extent uh, Russia will will be actually a, will be able to uh, uh, come up with the financing that it promises. If you look at at the performance at home, you know uh, Russia has connected to the grid eight react in in the past decade the average construction time was 22 years i mean what kind of business card is that uh obviously with a very large range from from eight to 35 years so uh it it and in in other countries you know it's not really uh brilliant neither the the, the last uh, uh, units that have been started up in India. Basically, the the Indians blame the Russians, the Russians blame the Indians, but the reactors don't operate as they should be operating. Uh, so uh, Russia is very very aggressive from a from a commercial point of view, but in terms of what is happening on the ground, it's not really convincing. Right, and with with China and India being really close to a little shy of 40% of global population, if my numbers are correct, just those two countries combined, I mean, billions of people. What What is the solution for such a massive demand that's coming coming down the pipe with those two countries? What do you, what do you see as an ideal solution for them? You know, it's very difficult to give an answer to such a question. What is an ideal solution? I think what we, what we, I'm, I'm, as I said, you know, I'm a big fan of empirical uh, analysis. What we are seeing right now in both countries is this huge growth in in uh, re renewable energies. I mean, with with China having the, as we said earlier, the only really large uh, nuclear power uh, program uh, in in terms of building. Um, it is still providing more power with wind alone than with nuclear power. And solar power is catching up incredibly fast. And the same is true for India. So, uh, I mean, India, there's actually now 10 countries that uh, generate more power, 10 nuclear countries, uh, 10, 10 of the um, 31 nuclear countries generate actually more power with renewables than they generate with nuclear power, which is very interesting. It's, an, it's, a, it's a, obviously a, a rather recent development. And South Africa was added to the, the, these countries over the past year. Uh, I think it, it's, uh, you know, when we look at the numbers in terms of investments, uh, 
we had China for 2017 with 126 billion as by far the largest investor. That has been uh, that has been increased. That was an est early estimate. 246 billion dollars invested in one year. I mean, you know, the the U.S. invests, uh, you know, 41, 42, around 40 billion dollars. Um, the the Chinese investment uh, plunged in in 2018 to um, around that's the early estimate, so one has to be careful. But it's around uh, 90 billion uh, because they cut incentives for especially for for solar and because of the the price drop. The prices continue to drop. The last figures I've seen for the U.S. is 13 percent. In, in one year for wind and solar. So China and, and, and India, I think they still have a huge potential in, in, uh, in wind and solar and continue th that route. And obviously it's all with the, uh, it's like, how, how did uh, Amory Levin say? It's like, fine, it's like an orchestra. One has to fine tune the, the combination of, uh, 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 you know, uh, electricity generating sources. And, you know, one has to, there's another issue in the background is that we, we need to stop uh, filtering out electricity. I mean, we have to talk energy. Uh, and if you do that, you realize that, you know, what is at stake is, is much more, of course, than, than electricity. A country like France that still, you know, generates more uh, than 70% of its electricity by nuclear power. If you look at final energy, it's around 17%. And it's interesting because if you talk final energy in a country like Germany, which has still a very significant share of coal in its electricity generation, but it's just below, below 17% final energy in uh, it's you know that back to India and and and, Ch and China. Um, I think there is a lot of the potential is enormous that is still uh, you know out there for for um, renewables to be to be built up. And not to forget, China had has made uh, significant advances in energy efficiency, which which you know uh, is is obviously the first thing to do. It's always it's always fascinating for us, kind of on the on the money side a little bit, thinking about. These these prices of renewable uh, continue to fall, continue to fall, and how how at the end of the day, how are the margins at the end for the operators is, is always a question that's uh, that we've yet to fully answer as we continue to drop these costs down. And of course, then the last thing is is in, in a big uh, credit cycle uh, situation like we've experienced in the U.S. and quite a expansion of credit over the last ten years. Uh, how how this will continue to go when things in the market. Uh, turn around, and of course, we have the inevitable bear market in, in finance that eventually will come again. Um, I want to want to focus on France uh, because I know you've done a lot of work there, and, and of course, uh, yourself uh, spending a lot of time in France as well. What is your position on the French abandonment of the Generation Four reactor development? Yeah, that is an interesting. Uh, it, it for me also personally, it kind of goes full full uh, circle, uh, full cycle. Because uh, uh, when I started out in 1983 working on these issues, uh, my first major topic was Super Phoenix, was the you know French fast reader reactor. Um, and uh, <clears throat> by the middle of the 80s, uh, you know, to me it was already clear that the the, the breeder reactors uh, had no no reason to be anymore uh, because let's let's you know go back in history you know that the first uh, nuclear power plant that generated electricity was the EBR one in the U.S. which was a you know which was an experimental breeder reactor so the the idea of of uh, breeder reactors has been around ever since you know uh, nuclear electricity has been generated. Uh, uh, of course, EBR one had a partial meltdown after, which was not so uh, so good. In in France, uh, Super Phoenix was um, a technological failure. It, it had the worst 
load factor of any nuclear plant that has ever been operated in, in, in France. But the key thing here is that, you know, the breeders were supposed to produce plutonium that was supposed to be substituted for natural uranium. And by a, we'll have a very nice uh, graph in our uh, upcoming report. If you look back what in 1974, by the middle of the 70s, the forecasting was for the development of nuclear power. Then what was labeled the most likely scenario of the IAEA would, was uh, something like 3,600 gigawatts installed by year 2000. That's, that's more than 10 times what reality was. So it, the, the effect of that is, is very simple, is that there was never any shortage of uranium. And of course, we've, uh, um, uh, you know, we've seen uh, a depressed uh, natural uranium market for, for quite some time now. Uh, and, you know, with, with the situation of nuclear reactors being what it is, meaning, uh, you know, uh, this, is, this is actually a population that will die out. It's only a question of, of time. So there is no pressure on the supply of natural uranium. So there's no pressure on uh, substituting uh, with, with plutonium. So the, the, this whole idea of breeders is actually be has become obsolete in, in, under the, the current circumstances. So the, the decision by uh, the, the French government to uh, uh, abandon the, 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 the latest model uh, that they had in mind uh, called Astrid uh, is, is a very logical thing to do. What is not logical is that they have maintained the plutonium, plutonium separation uh, uh, industry because they, they always um, kept that myth alive that, you know, one day they will be able to, uh, to use um, uh, plutonium that is bad quality coming from light water reactor, spent light water reactor um, uh, fuel that would be reprocessed and, and that plutonium would be used in breeders. That's now over. And uh, which means that there should be an, an, an entire strategy rethink for the French system. Interesting. Yeah. And, and certainly there's no doubt uh, there's, there's plenty of cheap uranium around. Um, I think, I think where the bottleneck is, 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 uh, those people losing the incentive to go out and get it because it's so cheap. And uh, so that's that's an interesting uh, situation that's developing in the uranium mining market. Um, now, I wanna ask you about, the French had delayed the phase down of some of their nuclear power, uh, I believe if my memory serves out to like 2035. What is going on and why the delay with, with getting rid of the French or at least reducing the mix of nuclear in, in France? That's a that's a complex uh, question. Uh, like I, I try to answer that, giving you a few elements, but it it might not be exhaustive. Uh, one one of the uh, the elements that um, uh, are having uh, been put forward is the climate debate, saying that they would need to you know run more gas or higher carbon content. Uh, options, which has been basically debunked as an as an argument, it's fe it would have been feasible uh, at the original um, uh, deadline that was set in the in the previous law, which was uh, 2025. Uh, but there's another issue, and it's very much linked to what we were discussing earlier. Uh, France has an, uh, a strategy currently where it's a flow of uh, spent fuel uh, uh, that is going from the power plant to the Lahag facility. Now, the problem is uh, uh, the pools are filling up in the power plants and the pools are filling up at Lahag. So there, there, there is a problem on one hand that if they 
don't do reprocessing, uh, uh, then you know they will run out of capacity of storage within a few years. Within a few years. And one can discuss, is it five years, is it four, is it six? It depends on throughput, it depends. There's various parameters, of course, but it's, it's only a few handful of years. Um, the, uh, and it's shaky because uh, you could, you know, say strategy-wise, you, you slow down or you phase out reprocessing. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, um, if you stop reprocessing, it also means, um, uh, sorry, if you go ahead with reprocessing, you, you have plutonium to be disposed of. And, you know, there is a diplomatic engagement by France not to increase stockpiles, even if it has gone counter that, uh, that engagement uh, for, for many years. Uh, but this rate would, would significantly increase if they shut down uh, uh, reactors. Because it turns out that the oldest reactors and the most likely ones to go first are the ones that use light water reactor MOCs. So you, you have a, you, you have a, it's, it's kind of a tricky situation. It's, it's a very, it's, it's a house of cards uh, where, you know, if they stop reprocessing, there is a problem uh, with spent fuel management. If they, um, if they continue reprocessing, they have troubles shutting down their old reactors. You know, one of the other things that this this frequently comes out is is the uh, French, in comparison to other countries in Europe, generally have a lower retail energy bill. Is that attributable to nuclear, or is it another factor that uh, that, that France enjoys there as far as lower cost of energy? I actually really appreciate the way you put it in your first question. It's the question of the electricity bill. And the point is that the electricity bill is not uh, uh, much cheaper in in France than it is, uh, you know, in other countries. The kilowatt hour is cheaper. But you see, the problem is if you have cheaper kilowatt hours and you, you use more kilowatt hours, your bill is going to be as high as at the neighbor's. And one of the big problems uh, we have in France is electric space heating. There's about 30% of the homes are electrically heated. I mean, electric space heating is pretty dumb in a, in a, in a context like that because it's not, nuclear power is not really there to supply uh, peak load. And uh, you probably know that peak load in, in Europe is in the winter and not in the summer as in, in countries like the US. So uh, what we're seeing is that uh, people, uh, more and more people are in trouble. And there is now one in five households is classified as energy poor uh, in France. And one of the, the key reasons is the high consumption of kilowatt hours uh, if you do electric space heating. Because of course, if you're, Let's say your electricity is 50% cheaper than, than in a neighboring country, but if you use three times as many kilowatt hours, you're, you're in trouble anyway. So what, what happened is a lot, of, a lot of households, they now for legal reasons cannot be cut off electricity during the winter. So they, they, they keep heating during the winter and you know they, they have a huge, a bill when they come out of the winter and get get cut off electricity uh, when as soon as, as as it becomes legal again so you know it's it's uh it it the the, the price therefore it's it's the right way you have put the question it's the question how high is the electricity bill and not you know how expensive is the kilowatt hour well, I want to want to move over to another uh, subject. Uh, what are the, in your view, what do the changes in the nuclear industry mean for this advanced nation debate on climate change and global warming? Yeah, this is this is really a, a key issue, uh, of course, and we will have in our report for the first time a, a dedicated chapter on climate change and nuclear power. Now, <clears throat> what is the of utmost importance here is that 
the key question in the climate change debate is, if I spend a dollar, uh, a yen, or a euro, how much emissions reduction I can buy and how fast? So it's the combination of effectiveness uh, of uh, investment combined with the time factor. And of course, it's, it's uh, interesting to see that the, the, the whole idea of climate emergency uh, is, is something relatively new. You know that, that more and more uh, cities and regions have uh, declared their uh, administrative region uh, in a state of uh, climate emergency. Which, under, which stresses the time factor. Now, if we're, if we're spending a dollar, a euro or a yen into uh, the uh, construction of a new nuclear power plant as a tool for mitigating uh, climate change, it's the worst option because it combines a very high cost uh, and as we've said earlier, I mean, the, the costs are now rid ridiculously high. I mean, we're talking $150 uh, dollars per megawatt hour, maybe more for, uh, you know, leave alone projects we will never figure out maybe, but uh, like Flamanville or, or Hinkley Point C, the, the feed-in tariff uh, there that was negotiated uh, was 92.5 pounds per, per megawatt hour. That is that is like twice the, the 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 market price, the wholesale market price. I mean, it's who makes a deal like that? It's it's, it's a very strange uh, way to 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 make uh, um, uh, you know guaranteed uh, uh, prices. Uh, so. It's it's a very high it comes in at a very high cost, but it's not only the high cost. It's also very slow, as we've said earlier. You know the the average construction time uh, is is ten years. I've seen recent uh, announcements for uh, large uh, wind projects that that go from project phase uh, that have now pushed. The, the the time below one year of uh, lead time. So uh, new nuclear power is is the worst option when it comes to uh, fighting climate change because it's the the most expensive and it's and it's especially the slowest. Now the second question is of course yeah but we have a lot of installed nuclear power so what about uh, you know, uh, uh, existing nuclear power plants. Uh, and there, the, 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 the assessment is really, it's more complicated because it's, it's uh, deliverable. You know that in the United States, a certain number of individual states have given uh, utilities what they call uh, zero emission credits which is nothing but a, a direct brutal subsidy for a number of years. But that doesn't solve really the issue, does it? I mean, it only stretches a lifetime of these uh, reactors for, for a few years at a very high cost. So that cost has to be put into perspective with uh, other options. But it's also the dynamic that is created. You know, if you take if, uh, if you take a, uh, you know, look at, look at the comparison of the post 311 political decisions in a country like Germany and compare it to Japan. Germany within four months created an, a comprehensive package, legislative package that not only phased out nuclear power, uh, uh, I mean, it gave a, a target of, of a 10 year uh, horizon, uh, but it it also had a very extensive package on energy efficiency and on on renewables. But for an investor, it's dreamland. You have a fixed target dates when, let's say, 1,300 megawatts go offline. 
that gap can be filled at a, with a target date. That's the perfect investment guarantee. What did Japan do? Japan, uh, basically after 3.11 said, well, we, try, we will try to restart as many reactors as we can. Uh, well, we're now in the eighth year after 3.11 and there's nine reactors that have uh, uh, restarted and there's, you know, by and by more and more reactors that actually been, are being declared uh, um, closed even if it was clear for, for many years that a lot would not come online. But what they have is a situation which is a total uncertainty. So for investors, they don't know. Are they, they will they restart? Will they not restart? Uh, how many will restart? When? Nobody knows. And um, so it's, it's a situation of investment insecurity. Uh, and I think that with that situation, there is also in an environment like, like Germany, there's an incredible stimulation for innovation, which is blocked. You know, there's nothing more powerful than a large scale operating uh, a power plant, by the way, whether it's nuclear or coal or anything else. Uh, it's, it's a very powerful uh, innovation barrier. And uh, it's, it's all the more interesting that that you know, it, I'm I'm using the term innovation not only in the technological sense, but also in the sense of uh, uh, market tools, of new business models. Uh, you know, for example, in 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 Germany, the uh, energy co-ops have uh, you know, there's now about a thousand co-ops, and they're very major uh, investors. We're talking multi-billion investment through co-ops. Uh, so, so new business models, new, in, new investor parts, uh, and the old utilities have basically, uh, you know, kept their, their old style uh, uh, and with, with what we've seen as, a, as an effect with an erosion of their market share, uh, which in many cases is more than, uh, has been more than halved. Uh, some some have lost, including the French utilities, over 80 percent. So uh, I, I think it's it's from a climate perspective crucial to you know in many cases when it comes to power generation uh, or or uh, energy services, uh, providing heat, providing cold uh, lighting, etc. You will will do that with uh, renewables. Well, tell us, I want to move on to another subject. Uh, why do experiments in energy often go wrong? And tell us about the intelligent energy services concept. You know, often when you work for decades on something, you come, you come back in the end to something real simple. And um, I think one of the reasons why, uh, you know, we have, we're, have such great difficulties to get to the fundamentals is that we keep talking about barrels of oil and cubic meters of gas and kilowatt hours uh, which is actually not not the, the the crucial thing what is crucial is what comes with uh, it and that those are energy services and by energy services i mean primary energy services and there's only six uh, six categories. It's cooked food, it's uh, lighting, uh, it's heating and cooling, it's mobility, uh, it's communication, and it's motor force. Six categories. You couldn't put your entire life, everything that has to do with energy, you can put into one of those categories. So the question is how to provide these uh, services. And I can I can give an, an, an example. Um, how how difficult it is. Uh, I'm I've been involved for since 2013, uh, working with a group of consultants that I have uh, established um, that have been appointed by uh, the mayor of Seoul in South Korea to advise them on their uh, sustainable energy action plan, and. <clears throat> Uh, which has many components, and, and I just want to take one example, that is lighting. Uh, Seoul has probably one of the largest, if not the largest, LED program ever. 
um, uh, because it had, uh, um, you know, targeted all public buildings with very uh, stiff uh, deadlines and a very high ratio of um, switching to LEDs from other uh, lighting uh, systems uh, in a very short time. Uh, but I have been, <clears throat> uh, had been suggesting from day one is to boost uh, daylighting. Uh, and he here we have a typical example. Daylighting is a very well-studied uh, issue. Uh, people feel better, people are healthier. Uh, large companies like Boeing or, or Lockheed uh, uh, have, have used it. And the, the, the basic outcome there is, you know, going to, um, uh, going to daylighting from art artificial lighting uh, has very fast is a very effective investment because uh, the energy uh, savings, uh, you know, give you like four four year uh, payback times. But if you assess uh, what is considered co-benefits, uh, and I'm just quoting two, one is the uh, absenteeism that drops 15%. 15, one five, 15 percent uh, drop in absenteeism, and productivity increases by 15 percent. If that is the case, then forget about forget about the energy savings. The economic benefit of using uh, um, daylighting is much larger than the the energy savings. So the my saying is that we should do fabrication facilities, offices, schools, where people feel well, they are productive, make less mistakes. Uh, and as a side effect, we're saving energy and obviously we're saving uh, um, uh, emissions big time. So uh, the, and back to the example in Seoul, this, you know, daylighting, and even five years after, there's no program on, on daylighting. It's just, it didn't sink in that, you know, what is crucial is the service that goes with it and not only the, 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 the saved kilowatt hours. Well, it's a very interesting concept that you bring up. Um, I want to want to move on. Does nuclear energy have a role to play in the future of energy or are you of the opinion that it's really on the decline at this point? Well, you know, if it if nuclear power was a living organism, it would be on the list. It, it would have been on the list of endangered species for a long time. Uh, we look uh, every year. We look at, you know, the construction rate it would take to maintain the current status. Leave alone any, you know, uh, any uh, extension, any any um, enlargement of the the current fleet, and. To put it in a, in a in a rough figure, you know, I have said we've been looking in detail on construction and uh, over the, the the past. So we we know there was uh, uh, 63 reactors that uh, have been connected to the grid over the past decade. If you project into the future uh, and you look at 40-year um, lifetime and licensed uh, lifetime extensions. You would probably you would have to triple the building ratio uh, over the coming decade uh, in order to break even, to triple. But meanwhile, what we're seeing is actually a decline in construction starts. We had, you know, uh, the the historic peak, and that clarifies the the, the orders of magnitude. Uh, we had a peak of reactors under construction like the total number of reactors under construction in, in, um, uh, of 234 uh, units uh, in, in the 70s. Uh, we have uh, had a uh, maximum of 44 construction starts in the 70s in one year. We have seen a decline to virtually zero uh, uh, 25 years ago, and and then people started talking about this renaissance, and we have seen indeed a kind of a little hill of 15 in 2010. 
Now, th these 15 have been eroded, to, construction starts eroded to uh, five in 2018, five in 2017, and one so far in 2019. You cannot maintain a fleet with such a small renewal rate. It will die out. It's just a matter of time. You know, how long the, the lifetime extensions are uh, implemented. We are seeing now that outages, we did a very precise analysis and it's going to be in the report. We're showing that the number of outage days, reactor outage days with zero uh, electricity generation in France is over 5,000 in 5,000 reactor days uh, um, in, in France. In other words, it's close to three months on average that the reactors are, were, were not producing any power. In Belgium, it was half a year, like half the, 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 the actual generation was, was uh, less than half. And the key reason is that outages get extended because of aging. And we've, we've seen only two years so far in nuclear history where uh, an average of 40 years was attained, reached from shutdown reactors. And that was in 2016 and 2018. So there is no industrial experience with reactors of, uh, of 60 years operation. And it's, you know, what we've seen is reactors are shut down much earlier because of economic reasons in particular. Well, as you know, there's no source of energy that is perfect. What are your thoughts on this so-called green energy boom, uh, at least the term green uh, that people have put in front of energy? Does all energy have some form of impact because it costs something and consumes something? Uh, well, as I said, you know, to me, it's the big, the big mistake there is uh, to look at it from a supply side. Uh, we need to look at issues from a service side. It's not, it's not even demand, exclusive demand, because you can demand, you can, you know, also look at it from a kilowatt hour or, or from a quantitative way. We need to look at the qualitative way and at the energy service supplied. Uh, it's fascinating what you can do with uh, uh, zero, um, you know, um, fuels. Uh, Simply by, you know, today we 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 can build homes that are energy plus. You know, they're they're that's their name. It's, they generate more uh, energy than they consume. Uh, the, the key issue here really is, uh, it's not to say this is good or bad energy. It's to be smart and provide energy services intelligent way, which means to use everything that you can call passive. It's not, not really a happy term uh, because it's, or um, they, what we have to invent another term, but uh, it's like insulation first. Uh, it's like daylighting first. It's, uh, you know, it, it's to, to optimize uh, the efficient uh, um, provision of, of energy services. You know that it, you can you can light a, a room by light shelves uh, inside and outside the window and and replace uh, artificial lighting. It's it's there are some very simple solutions and there are very complex solutions to do the to do the same thing. So yeah, that I that is to me really the the the, the key. This is my my policy. Uh, uh, advice to decision makers is take it from the energy service, very simple way, very simple way, and then put together uh, a response uh, strategy that places, uh, that has certain priorities. And one of the priorities is passive first, then active, local first, uh, then regional, then national, then international. So, so that, you know, putting together an, um, a, a policy strategy that is oriented at the at the real service needs, and not at uh, you know some kind of um, uh, uh, needs of uh, or quantification on supplies from the supply side.
Well, you bring some good points, Michael. You you had said something to me earlier before we before we did the show. Um, why are you not interested in the pro con debates about nuclear, and how does that relate to your favorable opinion of empirical analysis when it comes to looking at the data? You know, I always find it, it's the nuclear issue is kind of strange. Uh, there's all kinds of people that debate about uh, the, the nuclear issue that have no clue about nuclear, uh, the nuclear industry. And I think, you know, to me, it's looking, looking at the facts. It, it sounds like a, you know, very basic uh, uh, statement, but it's, it's amazing to what extent uh, there is a misunderstanding about uh, the performance of uh, nuclear uh, nuclear power, uh, and and I think one should do that first, and then one can take, uh, you know, it's it's debatable if if I'm saying, uh, you know, my analysis empirically shows that uh, this is an endangered species. Because the industry will not has not has not delivered uh, as they have promised over the past decades, and uh, you know therefore, uh, uh, you know tripling the building rate uh, would not work. So what I'm saying is, other people can say, hang on, they might this might change, right? I mean they maybe the the industry is uh, now or will be in a position. Uh, you know, to build faster, better, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Except that all the indicators are on going the other direction. Uh, you know, building times don't get uh, don't get better. Um, uh, the largest historic builder, Westinghouse, went bankrupt. Uh, it, the French counterpart, Arriva, uh, government held, went bankrupt. So. Uh, I'm saying if people have other uh, interpretations, then they have to come up with the evidence. Um, I'm coming up with the evidence based on, um, uh, you know, of what history shows, uh, and I come to certain conclusions, uh, but I don't think the, the pro and con debate is completely sterile. Uh, I don't think that 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 brings us any 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 further. We have to look at the facts and then take take the and then we can discuss about the what conclusions shall shall be drawn from the facts. Does that make sense? Uh, I mean, do you know what what I mean? I, yes, I appreciate you sharing your thoughts that on that. No, absolutely. No, I, I think I think you have an interesting uh, position on that, and and I think people should uh, should look into it and and consider that. Um, Michael, for the people who want to do some of their own research on energy and the topics we've discussed today, what sources have you kind of found? Can you share with us a couple credible sources that you've found over your work? Yeah, I mean, I I think that it's 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 an interesting topic. Um, sources. Um, uh, we we spend a huge amount of time of referencing um, the sources we use in the World Nuclear Industry Status Report. I think there's now over 1,200 in the in the uh, in the report. Um, so there's not it's not like one or two or five. It's like we're 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 using a very large number of sources. When it comes to um, uh, utility data, the situation has dramatically changed with the liberalization of the energy markets. Like we have access today to uh, utility data which we have never seen before. Like we can, you know, there's, uh, and I, I really recommend people to to look at what the um, uh, grid agencies and the utilities do today. And also in terms of uh, um, making it visually understandable, uh, you know, real time, for example, real time, um uh, uh composition of the energy mix in the grid is is available today that has dramatically changed over the past uh years uh otherwise obviously there's only a few sources for uh, uh worldwide information and i must say that the the people at um at uh bp do a great job with their statistical work 
it's definitely the fastest uh, out there. They they do uh, incredible. <laughs> it's an, an incredible team to come up in uh, in in June um, with data on the previous year, even if if obviously the numbers get corrected. Uh, and then there's the, the um, uh, Global Renewables Report, which has become a sort of a, uh, a very good reference. And uh, the UNEP and Frankfurt School uh, is now not doing their own, I've seen uh, with some surprise, they're not doing their own assessment on investments anymore. They feed it into the Global Renewables Report. So those are a few sources which might be useful for for readers. Now, Michael, first, how can people uh, get your latest annual report? And then how can they learn more about you and also potentially connect with you? The report will be available on the 24th of September um, uh, at the uh, website, dedicated website for the annual report, which is World Nuclear Report in one word, dot org. Um, there is uh, profiles of the uh, uh, lead authors and contributing authors uh, on the website. Uh, there is also a website uh, from of the International Energy Advisory Council that I'm a co-founder of and that uh, had its its first project, the advice of the of the uh, city of Seoul, uh, and uh, has done other projects in, since then. There is an interesting. Uh, there's a PDF uh, of a book that the Seoul Metropolitan Government has uh, released in 2017 on their energy action plan, which also contains a chapter I have authored on the intelligent energy services uh, concept, uh, which people might find useful. Uh, and both websites have uh, data on my bio. Otherwise, it's also people can go to michaelschneider.com. Well, Michael, really appreciate you coming on to take the time to share with us your insights. We uh, we really appreciate it. Well, thank you very much for having uh, me, and uh, I think it's a great format to have, uh, you know, more time to discuss things in uh, in in more detail.